0: begin reading in verse 1, and uh, the passage pretty much breaks up into sections, uh, parts of the story, uh, pretty much as it's divided into paragraphs in the ESV, and we'll uh, take it in those segments as we work our way through the text this evening. Hear the Word of God. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody of the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. Let us pray. Almighty God, we acknowledge that you are the Lord of heaven and earth, the ruler over all things, and Lord, as we turn our attention to this passage tonight, we pray that you would show us uh, who you are as the God of providence and the God who does care for his own. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So We study through uh, the life of Joseph, uh, and so much of it as we find here in the book of Genesis. Uh, You'll notice, of course, that dreams play a large part in the story of Joseph in the scripture. Of course, they play a significant part in his downfall, even a dream, two dreams that indicate his elevation uh, of the, the sun, moon, and stars bowing down to him. Uh, the dream which, out of his brother's envy and hatred, resulted in his his downfall as being sold into slavery in Egypt. Well, even so here, in the, in the next chapter, dreams play a significant part in Joseph's rise, his rise to power in Egypt. And so we'll look at this passage and the two dreams that it contains. In the first place, then, it tells us uh, about uh, how Joseph and these two officials became prison mates together verses one through four that we just read. Uh, it tells us that after some time after this, after Joseph uh, had been falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, after Joseph had been thrown into prison by Potiphar, uh, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense. The word there is the word for a sin. Uh, actually, uh, in, in the case of between human beings, it's an offense, it's some insult, some fault, an error, a mistake, whatever it might be that displeased Pharaoh, he committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer, the chief baker, and put them into custody in the house of the captain of the guard. The baker, uh, this, this is what the name implies. He, he was a chef. He was a baker for, Pharaoh, the cupbearer was something of a uh, prime minister, uh, something of a right-hand man to the Pharaoh. It's worth noting over in uh, Nehemiah, uh, after his prayer in chapter one of Nehemiah, uh, praying uh, for God's people, praying for the Lord to remember his people, the chapter ends, now I was cupbearer to the king, and then in chapter two, that information comes into play because Nehemiah is able to speak to the king and to secure leave to go to Jerusalem and, and begin to rebuild. Uh, well, in this case, it was the cupbearer to Pharaoh, something of his prime minister, together with the baker, who because of some unnamed offense, are put into prison. And verse 3 tells us, he put them in custody of the house of the captain of the guard. The captain of the guard. Who was that? Well, turn back to chapter 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian. So uh, apparently he's back, he's still interacting, has dealings with with Potiphar, captain of the guard. Uh, The captain of the guard, verse 4, pointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. Joseph was a slave, and the cupbearer and the baker were uh, officers, high officers, with Pharaoh, and so... uh, so we said last time Potiphar's feelings about Joseph and probably knowing his wife, I imagine, were somewhat mixed at uh, uh, losing a good man like Joseph, whose presence and efforts brought blessing and prosperity and order and efficiency to his household. Apparently, assuming that the captain of the guard here still is Potiphar, uh, he he's treating Joseph pretty well. He puts Joseph in prison to attend to high officials in, in Potiphar's in uh, Pharaoh's court, rather. And so he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. Now, one thing that we do know here is that Joseph is 28 years old at this point. And how do we know that? Well, if we'll skip ahead uh, to chapter 41, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed he was standing by the Nile. we we'll turn in chapter 41, over to 40, uh, verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So using your higher critical math powers here, you take 30, subtract 2, and you deduce that Joseph was in fact 28 at this point. How old was Joseph when all this started? Remember? Back in chapter 37? He was 17. So uh, by the time this is happening, Joseph is 28 years old. He's been in Egypt 11 years now. So it's, it's been a long time. We don't know how long he was working in Potiphar's house before all of that happened uh, or how long uh, of a time he was actually imprisoned. Uh, but 11 years have passed now uh, since Joseph came to Egypt. Uh, not quite been in Egypt as long as, as long as he'd been alive when he went to Egypt, but he's been there uh, a significant por- uh, portion of his life. And so here they are, sometime it says they continued in custody. And then we come to the dreams, verse 5. And one night, they both dreamed, the cupbearer, baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? Presumably he knew them well enough to recognize something was not right. They said to him, we've had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Now, in the context, uh, in in Egypt, dreams uh, received a great deal of emphasis for their value in indicating the future, or in indicating commentary on the present. Uh, Egyptians were big on dreams. In fact, in the Chester Beatty Papyrus, which dates from uh, the 13th century B.C. in Egypt, 1400s B.C., it describes four characteristics of dreams, uh, four particular emphases, and dream oracles uh, that, or omens that uh, were looked for. The dreamer sees himself doing something. Number two, dreams indicate the future. Number three, dreams are allegorical or symbolic. Uh, And number four, a principle of similars is used. Either similarity in sound, puns, similarity similarity in words, uh, or similarity in the situation. And in these dreams, all four of those come into play in, in both dreams. Now, It says that the cupbearer and the baker were uh, dejected, uh, might also translate it uh, haggard, Uh, they were troubled. Obviously they were in distress, they were disturbed, uh, because they no doubt had compared notes and and several things were going on here. Number one, uh, they both had a dream on the same night. They had dreams that were very similar to each other, which no doubt discovered as they compared notes and talked about their dreams. Uh, And also, they had no one to interpret the dream. Uh, These dreams, obviously, were not a coincidence, apparently quite significant, and yet who could know what it meant? And so that's why they were troubled. That's why they were afraid. Now, Joseph uh, points out that the interpretation of dreams belongs to God, and in so doing, He's making a significant statement because there were those in in Egypt who were interpreters of dreams. In fact, they were paid by the dreamer to render an interpretation uh, as to what the dream meant. Well, Joseph cuts to the chase and says the interpretation of dreams belongs to God. To and he, he uses the term Elohim, not Yahweh, uh, Elohim, not the covenant name, which would in some ways, be offensive to the Egyptians. It was reminiscent of things Hebrew. He just uses the term God. Now, um, we come then to the cupbearer's dream in verse 9. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Now, several things that are going on here. Uh, but one thing, perhaps the key phrase in this dream is the lifting up of his head. Um, these various elements here. And Joseph responds to him, in three days Pharaoh will lift up your head. He takes the various elements of the dream and interprets them Pharaoh will lift up your head. It's a Hebrew idiom. It has to do with the restore, restoration of one's fortunes, one's position, one's place or well-being. Uh, in fact, it occurs in any number of places in Scripture. One that um, came to my mind was from Psalm 3, verse 3. O oh Lord, how many are my foes? How many are rising against me? Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. And so the lifting of someone's head, idiom for restoring his fortunes, restoring his position. And that's exactly what Joseph said is going to happen here. Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. In other words, you'll be put back where you were, things will be as they were before. However, Joseph asks a favor. When this happens, when things are going well for you, please remember me. And it's interesting here, this is um, a commentary by Joseph himself on his own experience, and he, he says two things, uh, basically, here. One was that uh, he was uh, wronged by his brothers, although it's curious he does not mention his brother's role in what happened, where he says, I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, uh, which is how he got here. And then how he got into prison, even then, he maintains his innocence. Here also, here in Egypt, I've done nothing that they should put me into the pit, And so he asks for a favor. Typically, the interpreter of a dream would receive payment for his interpretation. Well, Joseph asks nothing more than simply to be remembered to Pharaoh when the cupbearer gains his freedom. Well, Chief Baker, no doubt very encouraged by this uh, rendering of the interpretation of the cupbearer's uh, dream. And so the baker himself, verse 16, when the chief baker saw the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also... Had a dream, there were three cake baskets on my head. Again, the repetition of three. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. Three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you, and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Uh, Very interesting, because the the first initial wording is exactly the same. In three days, uh, Pharaoh will lift up your head, and I think the ESV's rendering of it here is is brilliant, Uh, the emphasis on from you, because the, the wording to this point is exactly the same, and no doubt the... Baker is excited. He's hearing the same thing that he told the cupbearer. He'll lift up your head from you—a uh, literal lifting up of your head—and uh, hang you on a tree, extending his neck a little bit. And the birds will eat the flesh from you, which was a particular, which would be horrifying in any case. Uh, but as you know, the Egyptians placed great stock in embalming, particularly with the pharaohs, but others too. The idea of being prepared for the afterlife and having one's body uh, made ready was very important. And so the idea of your body not being buried but simply being picked apart by the birds uh, was certainly gruesome in any case, but maybe particularly odious in, in Egyptian culture. And yet that is exactly what he uh, predicts is going to happen to the baker. Now, it's interesting in both of these cases that the Lord obviously revealed the meanings of these dreams to Joseph. He, what he spoke was absolutely, as we'll see in a moment, came came to pass. But Joseph could not see his own future, his own outcome. Uh, Joseph, even as he uh, spoke of the deliverance of these two prison mates, uh, was in the dark about his own situation. Uh, he is simply called to be patient. He is called to wait on the Lord. He is called to endure the wrong that was done to him, both by his brothers, both and also by uh, Potiphar's wife. And so he does. He's able to foretell, and yet at the same time, he does ask uh, with hope that he would be remembered, and in fact, he might be able to escape this uh, this this prison. Well, then we come to the, to the fulfillment. Uh, Verses 20 through 23. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, a day of celebration, a day of festivity in the kingdom, and a day when Pharaoh is feeling particularly generous and gracious, and perhaps willing to grant favors and uh, deliver pardons, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position. And he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Well, so far everything happened exactly as Joseph said that it would. Uh, but then the uh the disappointing last verse. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Now a little bit of a change in the pattern, because remember earlier the chapters we've looked at tended to end on a slight upturn. Things happened, things were bad. Uh, The brothers sell Joseph, and they're they're mourning with Jacob over his presumed destroyed son, destroyed, killed by an animal. And then the, the chapter ends by saying now Joseph was taken and sold into slavery into Potiphar's house in Egypt. He wasn't out being a field hand. He actually was in a place of influence, a home of power. And then we saw in the last chapter where Joseph is falsely accused. He holds his integrity. He is obedient to the Lord and uh, he is falsely accused, and he is cast into prison. And yet even there, we read that twice it's stated the Lord was with him, and, uh, and he actually rose to a um, position of some influence and trust within the prison. Uh, may not be much, being in prison, but at least he, he was on top in, in prison. So again, it's something of an upturn. Well, here Joseph's able to render the interpretations... Uh, the, the dreams, the, the dreams are fulfilled, as he interp- just as he interpreted that they would be. Yet the chief bearer, uh, cup bearer, did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Now Joseph did not hear the narrator saying this. Oh, I've been forgotten. No doubt Joseph's hopes were quite high. As these men were released, he may have heard of the death of the baker. Uh, perhaps with sadness, we don't know what Joseph thought about the baker. Uh, Perhaps you, the cupbearer was once again serving in his office with Pharaoh. Uh, and yet the day passed, and the next day passed, and the next day passed, and the next day passed. And no deliverance, still in prison, nothing's happening. Until it must have dawned on Joseph, you know, this, this went nowhere. So Joseph is, is forgotten, languishing in prison. And as we learn in chapter 41, it was, it was another two years in prison, before anything more happened. So, a couple of thoughts as we uh, think about this chapter. Uh, first of all, dreams. Uh, what are we to make of of the dreams here, and not just here, but throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament? You find God speaking to, revealing Himself to His people through dreams, and not just through dreams, but through theophanies, uh, manifestations of the presence of God. The, The cloud, the lightning, thunder at Sinai being a theophany. The burning bush being a theophany, an appearance of God, uh, speaking to Moses, uh, casting of lots. You know, modern day equivalents flip a coin, right? The urim and the thumim, the stones on the ephod that would, uh, somehow indicate, uh, God's direction when the people sought counsel or guidance from him. Uh, God even used a wet or dry fleece to confirm his purpose and His will, and it's very tempting, and sometimes confusing to think, well, why doesn't God do that now? Wouldn't it be great if God did that now? You yeah, know, if we could just cast lots, if we could just somehow uh, put the fleece out there, and see what happens, Lord. If you want me to do this, make it wet. If you don't want me to do this, make it dry. And and that God would do it. You know, we would know. Or better yet, He would just appear to us in a burning. Uh, bush or burning car, or whatever it might be that was on fire today, uh, and you know you hear him calling your voice um, in some ways, that certainly would be exciting, dramatic, and frightening. Uh, on the other hand it's important to remember that God one God gave the dreams to uh, people as far as we know are complete pagans here, although Joseph did interpret them. Uh, But it's also worth noting that God dealt with his people in that way in a time of immaturity, their immaturity, and not personally or emotionally, but immaturity in terms of redemptive history, in terms of how much God has revealed of himself and of his purposes of salvation to his people. Uh, And in fact, believe it or not, we actually have far more than Moses did when God appeared to him in a burning bush. Uh, We actually have far more even than Isaiah had when he saw that vision of the pre-incarnate Christ in Isaiah chapter 6. And in fact, Hebrews tells us this in the very opening of the chapter because Hebrews deals with that very question. Wouldn't it be better to go back? Wouldn't it be better to return to what we had before? Uh, Weren't those things better than what we have now? And the answer that Hebrews gives is an emphatic no. Why would you want to go from adulthood back to infancy? Why would you want to go from adulthood back to being a toddler? No. This is the answer of Hebrews, and it begins in verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Long ago, and many times, in different ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You see, God's revelation progressed up to Jesus, but it does not progress beyond Jesus. And in fact... What we have in Scripture is, is God's testimony and Revelation, a testimony about and revelation of Jesus. Both the preparation leading up to his coming, the events of his ministry and his life and his death and resurrection here on earth, and then the divinely inspired commentary on what the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus meant and what Pentecost meant. Uh, we have all that. Moses didn't have that. Isaiah didn't have that. John the Baptist didn't have that. And in fact, the, the apostles didn't have that. At least not at first, and for the most part, not altogether, as, as you and I have it today, to be able to read the Scriptures. And it was only until the day of Pentecost that they had the Holy Spirit the way that you and I have the Holy Spirit today. So as we read a chapter like this, and we've already seen dreams back in 37, we'll see dreams again in 41, um, it's worth remembering and giving thanks to God for the place that you and I enjoy in redemptive history. The riches that are ours, that our fathers in, in, among God's people did not have, that our ancestors simply didn't have access to. And so God spoke to them uh, as as those without the Spirit, as those without the, the Scriptures, as we have them today, so that's one thing to think about dreams, the other is is Joseph himself, and just what was going on here in his life. You and I are not Joseph. Uh, you and I have not been imprisoned with cupbearers and bakers, and uh, put in the position of having to interpret dreams. If you have, i'd love to talk with you further uh, and so it's it's sometimes dangerous to just read ourselves into the story or find lessons you know, as Jay Uton referred to, life, you know, lessons uh, for, for living in in this passage. But there's certainly, I think, in the, in the overriding theme of this passage is one that we need to remember. And that is that God does put us in places where we are simply called on to wait patiently. Without really knowing why, without really knowing what's going on, uh, Joseph saw the cupbearer released and restored. He saw the baker released and executed. And here he is, still in prison, without any idea of the rest of the story, as you and I have it, wondering what on earth is going to become of him. He's going to spend the rest of his life rotting away in an Egyptian prison. He didn't know. He didn't know what was to happen. And so God, sometimes like Joseph, puts us in places where we really don't see what's going on, we don't know what's going on, but we do know one thing. God does. And when we don't know, we simply have to be content to wait patiently and wait on the Lord. George Mueller, uh, Bristol, England, uh, started an orphanage. You may be familiar with his story uh, in which one of the guiding principles was they would ask no one for money except God. And a remarkable story. Uh, But George Mueller says this about Joseph's situation, uh, sometimes our situation, like it. You need never take a step in the dark. If you do, you're sure to make a mistake. Wait, wait, wait till you have light. Remember the Lord Jesus, that as he is counselor to the church of God, he will be, in your particular case, counselor and guide and will direct you. And if you patiently wait expectantly wait, you will find that the waiting is not in vain, and that the Lord will prove himself a counselor, both wise and good. Well Joseph discovered that. He knew that, and he saw how it unfolded, but at this point all he knew was he was in prison and he had been forgotten. Pretty desolate place to be. But it's in those situations when we feel that way, when life seems that way, that we simply have to, as George Mueller said, Wait, wait, wait on the Lord. We may not know, but He does. Let's pray. Father, we praise You that You are the sovereign God. You know the end from the beginning. In fact, You've ordained the end from the beginning and everything in between. Father, we tend to be an impatient people. Uh, we are people who are accustomed to microwaves and cell phones, computers, and yet, Lord, you were never in a hurry. you were working out your purposes in your own time and in your own timelessness. Father, we pray that you would teach us to be a patient people, people willing and ready to wait, to wait on you, to wait for you. Lord, we tend to be impulsive. We tend to want to run ahead. And yet we pray, Father, that you would give us grace, even when we're not sure what's going on, to wait on you. We thank you that you are a sure counselor and guide. We thank you that you do not play games with us. You do not attempt to trick us or mislead us or catch us. But you are a very patient, loving Father. And we pray, O God, that you would increase our faith, increase our patience, Increase our ability and our willingness simply to wait on the Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.